Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 319 of the Fun with Cars Motorsports Podcast, or episode 5 of 2022. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man who is moving to Canada so his son, Will, can become the next Canadian billionaire's son, Christopher Roche. Hey, Chris. Hey, Robin. It is Wednesday morning, March 30th, and we are going to talk about the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. But uh, I do actually have to start with another correction. (laughs) Oh, no. I knew this was coming. Uh, I knew this was coming. So I made the correction last show that I made the mistake when I was talking to Simon Paginot about uh, Sebastian Bourdais' championship run. His championship run was 2004 to 2007. And then I then said it was uh, Paul Tracy in 2003, and that one was memorable. And before that, it was Cristiano D'Amata. I was so close, but not quite right. So it, <laughs> it was... Hang on, hang on. Just, just, yeah, just yeah. before you give us the correction, this is the correction of the correction, just to be clear, right? That's right. That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm good, correcting good. the correction. Yes. It's becoming meta. This is just going to become a segment of the show. <laughs> where I continually make stakes about correcting myself. Um, but I think I got it this time. Um, so Cristiano D'Amato did win the championship in 2002. That part is correct. Um, but I said 2001 in 2002, and that felt off. So I did actually check this time. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was the great Gilles de Ferrand that won in 2000 and 2001. And uh, and then D'Amato won in 2002, Paul Tracy in 2003, and then Sebastian Bourdais went on to have a string of championship wins. I am not going to say anything else. I want to start talking about Juan Pablo Montoya and Alex Zanardi and um, and Dario all on, but I know that I'm going to. I know. Well, Dario won it after all those guys. So, I think you've just invented a new a new bit for the pod, though, which is <laughs> who was champion that year. And we can right. we can we can go across different racing series and see how bad our memories have become over the last well, twenty years. At first, I was really starting to lose my mind because it was like championship winners, and it said two thousand three Scott Dixon. I'm like, no, 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 no. And then I looked. I was like, oh god, of course that was that was in the racing league when the two were split, and Penske was the first major team to move over to IRL as opposed to Champ Car, and then. Um, Chip Ganassi followed behind fairly quickly, and so so that it was Paul Tracy that won and Scott Dixon that won in 2003. Paul Tracy in Champ Cars, Scott Dixon in the Indy Racing League. So that's uh, that that caused another little lump in the throat for a moment, and I was like, oh, whew, goodness. So yeah. So anyway, well, should we should we move on and make more blunders? <laughs> yes, yeah, so let's blunder it up. Well, actually, I have one more thing to state. I am oh. drinking a lovely hot tea, and I do have a bit of milk and sugar in it. But it is an Irish blend tea that I quite like, called Berries. B a r r y apostrophe s. No, they are not a sponsor. Yes, it is good tea, but it's Irish. Is that like is that like blasphemy on some level? Uh, not to me. Well, cheers. I mean, you know. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I misspoke. It's not tea. It's Guinness. Anyway, um, <laughs> so another boring weekend in Saudi Arabia, huh? Yeah, it all kicked off, didn't it? I mean, do we want to talk about the uh, the explosion or are we going to just move on and talk about the racing? I mean, I, well, we, the, I, fa- the lack of the lack of coverage of it was kind of telling to a certain extent. Well, the, the whole the whole thing is kind of fascinating. I mean, it sounded like the, the drivers didn't fancy it and were ready to pack up and go home. And over f- a course of a four-hour meeting, they were convinced to change their minds. And I don't think we've we've heard too much exactly what compelling arguments were put forward to change their mind. But the thing I found most disingenuous was the claim that the local authorities could guarantee their safety. Oh, well, I, <laughs> I mean, really? From a missile strike or whatever. Yeah, yeah Which or bombs. Or... Just down the road. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You can guarantee that. So, um, Don't worry. Yeah. We have the cop. We have a cop on the beat, on the on the bomb beat. So I air. think there's now definitely some question marks about whether or not F1 should be going back to Saudi Arabia next year. 
And it's all kind of weird, isn't it? Because it feels like we weren't there that long ago because it was towards the end of the last season we went to Saudi for the first time. It was the penultimate race. And now we're back again as the second race this year. It seems like two visits in too short a time in my mind. Um, so, yeah, I'm hoping that we take a deep uh, pause here to think about whether this is really the right venue um, moving forward, given the current uh, issues there. Well, and I I think there are some question marks about the safety of the track as well. I, I mean, absolutely. just to, to even be more direct, uh, I mean, you know, the, the geopolitics are uh, certainly not in their most stable place these days, but that is something that potentially, theoretically, could happen anywhere. Um, obviously, I'm less worried about Monaco than I am worried about uh, Saudi Arabia, but um, the safety of the track combined with the speed of the track, I mean, those that's another issue to, to, to think about. Yeah, I mean, it was a, a big old shunt for Mick, on the Saturday in um, Q2 and uh, he was very very lucky um, to be effectively uninjured I think he could have raced on Sunday um, but has were concerned about their ability to run in the Australian Grand Prix if he had another shunt so number of parts yeah exactly and and given that he was obviously you know still fairly shaken up they decided to to not run him, but uh, but great that he he's able to to walk you know not walk away I guess because he was stretched away but essentially be uninjured from that type of high impact um, high speed impact is is a tremendous testimony to the safety of these cars but uh, but yeah it was a it was a you know I mean it was a fairly innocuous uh, mistake wasn't it he just rode up over the curb and um, and then that spat him straight to the outside of the wall which had no no protection at all and he was he was uh doing a fair old rate of knots wasn't he because the car then bounced literally down the track and hit the wall some you know hundred few hundred yards down the road i mean it was yeah. um big old crash completely the the whole back end was was effectively torn off um the the uh the driver's cell looked pretty pretty well protected though but uh and I guess has a saying that the car, the actual, the tub itself is uh, reusable. So they will just rebuild the, the, the car around that original tub with the new uh, side impact structure. But uh, so that's amazing. But but yeah, big, big, big old shunt for Mick and not ideal, given that, you know, he got, obviously got overshadowed by uh, Magnussen in round one. And obviously he was trying to put in a good quality lap and this this isn't going to help his cause moving forward that he's now obviously had a, a DNS in round two, a big crash. He's going he's gonna to have to find a way to bounce back here in Australia, I think. You're absolutely right. But I think it is worth noting that in Q1 and uh, leading up to that accident, he was quite quick and he was on pace or ahead of pace at times um, compared to Magnuson. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, we we obviously can't draw complete conclusions because we don't know their full run plans, and, and I don't remember exactly what Kevin had run at that point in Q2. But, yeah, I mean, he, he certainly w- was competitive up to that point, I would agree with you. It didn't look like he was being out, out performed massively, but uh, but clearly he was feeling the pressure and was trying to put in a good run and, and made a mistake. So not, not, uh, not ideal for him at all. That's right. Um, of course, you know qualifying. Qualifying was fairly notable. We must note that Vettel didn't participate uh, again because of COVID, so we had Hulkenberg in this weekend. But uh, of course, Hamilton going out in Q1 was was the biggest news and very shocking. Uh, I mean, we know the Mercedes wasn't working that well around uh, around the Saudi Arabian track, but for him to be out in Q1, especially with Sonoda already out, so you already had some. You know, uh, with mechanical issues, so you already had uh, um, an easier opportunity to get into Q2, but yet somehow, even with you know clear uh, clear enough track in front of him, he just couldn't set a time. It was amazing. Yeah, no, it, it was uh, the car and Lewis were just not on speaking terms on Saturday, and it was it was quite shocking in just how rare that was for Hamilton. Hamilton's always found a way to extract something out of the car, even when he was struggling, at least 
we were led to believe that. I have no reason not to. And uh, for some reason, I think it's just the the combination of challenges with the car, new design setup, you know, brand new for everybody. They're still sorting out those details. And it's new for the drivers. The drivers are having to adjust as well. I think all those things combined. What was really fascinating, um, I listened to, you know, the post-race interviews, and he said that um, he he did everything he could this weekend, but he wasn't sure that the team did. Um, now, I I should be careful here. I'm not I'm not trying to claim that I'm giving a direct quote, but um, he's basically he was basically kind of sort of throwing his team under the bus a little bit. Well, yeah, I mean, I I prefer to focus on qualifying it just at the minute. But what I would say is that you know he was six tenths behind his teammate, and his teammate you know obviously qualified in sixth place, so good enough to get into into Q three. <laughs> And qualify whereabouts most people, you know, think the car is in ultimate pace. So I know that his side of the garage decided to go for a slightly more extreme setup in an attempt to, I think, obviously close close the gap to the front runners, and that backfired. And the car was just it was just uh, too nervous, too twitchy, and uh, he just couldn't get the lap time out of it. So uh, I think he has to take some of the responsibility for that. I mean, if he'd just emulated Russell's setup, you would have thought that he could have at least got through to Q2. <laughs> Nothing else. And yeah. I mean, for, for sure, the Mercedes isn't great at the moment. I think we all know that. But you would, uh, there's no doubt that he underperformed. There's, you know, and, 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 you know, Russell demonstrated admirably what that car was capable of. And, you know, Lewis was some way off it, certainly in qualifying. I mean, we'll come on to the race in a minute, but in qualifying, uh, and, of course, on low fuel, the car doesn't seem to be particularly good. Um, but, you know, he should still have gone to Q2 at a minimum, and, and Q3 was definitely was there uh, as well. And, and he should really have qualified sixth or seventh, I would think, you know, somewhere around Russell's pace. Yes, but again, I think one thing to point out is that Lewis Hamilton has been so consistently strong for so long that we have to give him, if he's just having an off day where, you know, one decision leads to something that doesn't work well for him and he doesn't respond to it exactly, this happens all the time to drivers up and down the grid. So for Hamilton to experience that every once in a while... I, I think we have to allow that, right? Yeah, and you know, and if his if his attitude was let's roll the dice and put a setup on it that give, gives us a, you know him a chance to be closer to the ultimate pace, then that's that's to be applauded. Um, obviously, it, it, it backfired spectacularly, um, but I appreciate his efforts to to find a way to be competitive. I think they've, you know, they've got to be a bit careful though because ultimately he threw away over the course of the weekend a decent chunk of points. And right now, while the car isn't on the ultimate pace, they need to try and, you know, as they did in round one, they need to score as many points as they can and limit the damage. So it's a bit of a fine line you've got to tread. Yeah, you've got to you try and find a way to get more pace, but you've also got to make sure that the car is still um, a fairly understandable and drivable quality at the end of the day, isn't he? Well, and it's fascinating too because if you'll remember the first round in Bahrain, it was Russell that went for a crazy strategy of sorts. I'm using air quotes as I say crazy strategy. You know, a bold, aggressive strategy that did not work. And so he had to do some recovery work in the race. And then Lewis does that in round two. So... I don't know. Maybe there will be a reserve driver that comes in and tries a crazy strategy. It seems like <laughs> it seems like everyone's getting one. So uh, it was something to. So maybe they just had to get out of their system and just meet themselves in reality and be like, okay, this is just where the car's performance is right now. Crazy strategies aren't the way to go. Just consistency and just as you say, collecting points to mitigate the damage. And then you know, I would think. Once we get to Spain, certainly there'll be some pretty significant updates on the, on the car. Yeah, I mean, you would hope that uh, it was always a very short turnaround for the first two rounds, but with Australia in uh, you know, 
back April 10th, that there should be a bit more time to to affect some changes. And then, as you say, by the time the European season starts, you would hope that they would have a handle on it, if not before. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was a the surprises kept coming in qualifying. I mean, who would have bet on Sergio Perez putting in that lap to take pole position with uh, Verstappen way down in fourth place? Um, and uh, that was after a pretty decent Charles Leclerc uh, lap. Um, very fine qualifying performance from Sergio, something that we're not entirely used to. But uh, so far this season, he seems to be slightly, slightly more competitive on both a Saturday and a Sunday, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I, I definitely. He's settling into the team, and he's just getting, you know, us us older folk need more time to get settled. And uh, <laughs> you know, Perez is eight years younger than I am, I think, um, which makes him puts him in the elder statements class, right? So uh, he he just needs to. I mean, gosh, he's twelve, thirteen years older than uh, Max Verstappen is. So anyway, the point is that uh, he's he's getting more comfortable with the team. But I think th- it's interesting that you say that because his performance has improved. But I think that was actually, in many ways, the clearest indication of that, of how he's not quite to Verstappen's level because him getting that pole lap, he's he was saying, that lap was crazy, that was unbelievable, that's the best lap of my life. Like, he was really glowing about it. And rightfully, he should, but it was just... Had Max or Charles gotten the pole lap, they would have been like, "Yeah, the car was connecting. It was doing a good job. We thought we had good pace. You know, I, I, there's probably a little bit I could have done here and there. Do you know what I'm saying? So, like, for Perez to say, "Oh my God, that was the lap of my life," and he was whatever a tenth up on Leclerc afterwards, I was kind of like, to me, that was kind of a telling moment. Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, I do. I mean, ultimately. It's a pretty, as we've talked about, a hair-raising track, right? So I think if you nail it around Saudi Arabia, you're going to feel pretty buzzed afterwards because of the speeds and, and the proximity of the walls. But, uh, um, I mean, no matter how much effort level was put in, you know, the fact that he was able to out-qualify two Ferraris that are in, in good form and his illustrious teammate is, is a darn fine effort. So, you know, maybe he had to go deeper to the well than the others but he was the one who started first and and you know consolidated that uh, you know and drove you know a decent race as well so it was a, definitely a strong weekend for him um obviously we'll talk about how unlucky he was shortly but just before we we step away from qualifying i, I thought i was impressed by alpine's pace i mean fifth and seventh on the grid uh backing up their their, their strong run in Bahrain, um, the Alpine have surprised me how competitive they seem to be. Um, and then there were signs of life for McLaren with uh, Norris qualifying 11th and Ricardo 12th. So much better performance in Saudi Arabia than in round one, you know, in terms of just ultimate car pace in, in a one lap situation. So it's interesting how the order um, is evolving. And I think we'll continue to see it shuffle around, uh, you know, over the next few races. But uh, but Alpine and McLaren were some of the stars of, of, of qualifying for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually wanted to say one more thing about Sergio Perez and uh, getting that lap. That lap came after two red flags in the qualifying session. Uh, the first one, uh, the, mo- the, the longer one, of course, being for Mick Schumacher. Uh, that was a big cleanup and some question marks about how if he was okay. But the first one was from Nicholas Latifi, who just had a dreadful, dreadful weekend. Yeah, his ability to hit the wall is uh, is pretty impressive. He does it consistently, doesn't he? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, now that uh, Mazepin's no longer in the sport, uh, Latifi is starting to, starting to wear that badge of honor again. Uh, you know, it's, it's tough. What was frustrating to me, Latifi's performance was improving, um, if you look at him compared to Russell at the beginning versus towards the end when Russell left, but he was becoming more consistent and just making good steps, but he seems to be going in a different direction. And both times, cause I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but this was in the race. Both times he hit the wall. He said, I have no idea what happened. 
And it's like, that's, oh, that's really hard to hear you say, man. Yeah, so there's been some discussion that under the previous rules and regulations, obviously uh, drivers with slightly less natural ability, so the, the sons of the billionaires uh, and um, other fortunate individuals who've wormed their way into seats, you know, because, because the cars were, were fairly evolved over multiple seasons they got used to the characteristics of the cars and then with the simulation tools as well they were able you know to, to chip away and over time close the gap on on the more talented teammates someone like latifi closing the gap on russell for example but with the regulation reset uh, and the cars are much harder to drive now i mean there was a comment that after the uh, after the race the drivers all looked pretty exhausted and, and sweating profusely and you know they're not uh, they're, they're having to really you know dig deep to extract the maximum over the course of uh, of one lap or a race and that's where we're starting now to see again that you can differentiate in ultimate performance between drivers so yeah some of them are being found out and latifi is one of those at the moment he seems a little out of his depth again so presumably you know given enough time he'll he'll get on top of this and chip away and so maybe in three seasons he'll be up to albon's pace that's great <laughs> maybe so maybe so um there's one other thing that i think will lead into race performance and that was the performance of new tires versus the performance of used tires that was one of uh one of the things hamilton was saying it it, it seemed like the car performed better on used tires than on new ones so the way the curing process, maybe partially the lower, the lower tire warmer temps on brand new tires, plus the surface aggregate itself, all those things, and the temperature, all those things combined to really take a longer time for tires to kind of really rubber in and, and gain grip so that it almost seemed like used tires were an advantage, not a disadvantage this weekend. There's a few things going on there, particularly with the Mercedes. It, uh, it it does appear to work much better on heavier fuel loads. So its competitive disadvantage is reduced on, on slightly on, on a full full tank condition. Um, you know, it was fascinating if you if we if we dive into Lewis's race for a second, he made solid progress from his fifteenth uh, grid place. Uh, you go all the way up to sixth. Now, of course, that was helped a little bit by the safety car, um, and he elected not to stop under the safety car. So he, he got a few places that way. But ultimately, what, what I was really interested in was after the safety car came in, you know, would he be able to maintain sixth position on a fairly used set of, of hard tyres when he had the likes of Alonso right behind him on a brand new set of hard tyres? And sure enough, he was actually able to pull away. Um, so it, it kind of it supports, you know, that theory that the, 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 the scrubbed or used tyres were actually an advantage uh, over a brand new set of, of new tyres uh, based on, on that data. But also you could argue that maybe the Mercedes with a still, you know, decent amount of fuel on board was showing its true pace in Hamilton's hand at that stage. You know, he was more or less able to hold on to Russell and was actually setting pretty competitive times, you know, probably the, the third, third fastest car at that point uh, of the race. Um, but yet, my goodness, he got, he had no luck at all with the VSC, did he? And um, so he, he didn't take the stop he needed to change tyres, was looking for an opportunity. We had the VSC through the three failures of, uh, we had first of all Valtteri Bottas, then we had both Ricardo and Alonso slowing and then stopping on track. Uh, that ultimately closed the pit lane and Lewis missed the opportunity to come in before the pit lane was closed and therefore had to uh, uh, miss the opportunity to get a cheaper pit stop under the VSC and that really killed his race. But he had no pace at all relative to Magnussen um, on, on the medium compound tyres late on uh, under low, you know, lower fuel conditions. I mean, Magnussen just pulled away from him. So something very odd... Um, is going on with with the Mercedes in particularly in Lewis's hands uh, and looking at just the race lap times I mean he set the eighth fastest lap um, right behind his teammate both just in the high 31 minute 32s but both Magnussen and Norris set quicker lap times 
than the two Mercedes. And then, of course, the top four were all way off in the distance to the tune of three quarters of a second or more. But yeah, I mean, Norris was fifth, Magnussen sixth, Russell seventh, Hamilton eighth, and then you had uh, Ocon and Gasly rounding out the top ten for race fastest laps. Um, so yeah, Mercedes aren't in a great place. There's no doubt about it. But as Russell demonstrated, you know, if you, you you extract the maximum, then it can be the third quickest car, and you can get fifth place. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. And it's it's been really fascinating because. Mercedes has been the powerhouse team for so long, and they've been so good at whenever the car wasn't not just the quickest, but dominant, they were able to find ways to get performance out of the car. I mean, even you know going late into 2021, things really seemed to be falling away from Hamilton, but then uh, Mercedes came up with that really clever strategy of just adding a new engine into the mix. Uh, by taking the penalties for one race, and all of a sudden, uh, they had they had stronger engines and more straight line speed, and they're right there again, right? So we've had just years and years of Mercedes being at the top, and to see them genuinely struggle for pace, it's confusing, it's disorienting. <laughs> it's been years since we've seen this, so um, you know it's going to be very fascinating to see how. Australia, there's a little bit of time. There's a break. I, I'm all but certain we'll see updates on the Mercedes there. And then, as we mentioned earlier, once we get to Europe, it'll be really fascinating to see what new parts are thrown on the Mercedes and who gets those parts, Russell versus Hamilton, when and how, and those types of circumstances. But, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely it's part of the excitement of new cars for the season that's been really good. But, um, you know, we are seen yet again an epic battle at the front even without mercedes there between ferrari and red bull and to see how this was the closest in pace the two cars seem to have been and they were their overall lap times were extremely similar but in different places and that led to some really fascinating racing yeah, it was a great it was a great race long battle between ferrari and red bull um and uh I guess Carlos wasn't really that involved, but obviously Perez led for a good chunk of time. He was extremely unfortunate with the timing of his pit stop. Um, you know, it, he Ferrari sort of duped him into being the first to stop. Um, I think it was a genuine effort by Ferrari. They probably would have brought, brought Charles in for the undercut if Sergio hadn't pitted. But um, but Sergio, you know, committed to the stop, so they, Ferrari kept Leclerc out. And then uh, just after he got new tyres, we then had the Latifi shunt that caused the safety car. So everybody else um, pretty much was able to get a, a, a cheap stop. Um, and that uh, shuffled poor old Sergio down to fourth through no fault of his own because, you know, there was no indication that he was um, driving at a lower pace than 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 Charles could, could sustain at that point of the race. I mean, he looked very comfortable. He seemed to be able to keep outside of DRS range. He hadn't really been threatened up until that point. So um, who knows what would have happened if he'd been slightly luckier with the, with the safety car. Um, so one that got away for him, from him. But then, you know, the race then then basically turned into a Leclerc versus uh, Verstappen battle, uh, which was absolutely fascinating. How much do you think... Ferrari instigated Red Bull into that stop. Do you think that was Ferrari? My intuition was Ferrari made the decision that, all right, we're going to set up for a pits stop and we're going to do the opposite of what Perez does. That was my, they just wanted something to shake it up, be it an undercut or an overcut. Yeah, I, th- I think exactly right. They, they decided that the, you know, they were going to pit in at the start of the pit window uh, if Perez did not. Now, with Sergio committing to pit, they did, they elected to keep Charles out. So, um, of course, we'll never know if that would have been the, the faster strategy if if we'd had no safety car incident. But uh, I guess most of the teams were assuming that there would be safety car VSC periods during the race anyway. But, um, yeah, I think um, Red Bull are very savvy. We know that they are some of the slickest, uh, one of the slickest teams uh, in the paddock when it comes to pit strategy, the, the quickness of their pit stops um, and the ability to react to what other teams are doing. So um, 
you know, whether or not they just need to figure out their own strategy and stick to that as we move forward. Well, I guess they'll they'll have to think about that one. But uh, but yeah, I think there was certainly some pressure placed by Ferrari on Red Bull, and so and and Red Bull reacted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which you know, it was it was I was impressed to see uh, that coming into play and that gamemanship coming into play. But then um, I want to talk. Um, about Verstappen v. Leclerc a little bit, especially when we got towards the end of the race. But one of the best battles earlier in the race were between Ocon and Alonso. <laughs> and it was the weekend that uh, Sky Sports had Otmar Safar to talk with um, oh, on the radio uh, during the race. And at some point, they're like, aren't you going to put a stop to this? And he's like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, it was... It was very much. Um, it was. It was. Ex- it was fascinating to watch, and the calmness that Otmar displayed was was impressive to me. Yeah, it was. It was a tremendous battle. Um, they, they, you know, they, I don't think either of them were particularly too aggressive to the other. You, you've got to question the wisdom, though. I mean, surely if they if they work together for the first. You know, half or three quarters of the race, and then take the gloves off in the final quarter. That would make me a more sensible strategy rather than <laughs> going hammer and tongs early on yeah. uh, to the detriment of their lap time and their ultimate race position. I mean, Ocon was very close to losing sixth in the race, and and uh, you know, almost being caught by Norris. So, of course, the safety car did close up the field, but. You know, this is where points can be lost because you, you're too consumed by your own inter-team battle that your ultimate uh, race pace suffers. So, yeah, they need to be a bit smarter about that. But, I, I mean, from a race fan perspective, it was wonderful to watch them having a crack at each other, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely it was. And there was irony because the second Otmar said, OK, Ocon, hold position, Botas gets by him. <laughs> so. <laughs> right. And there's there's irony in that because would they have been able to perhaps pull a gap on Botas had they fixed position and then worked together in the draft and of those types of things as opposed to racing each other? That's the big question mark, and I think that's kind of what you're alluding to uh, earlier as opposed to uh, battling each other so aggressively. Had they worked together, maybe they would have kept Botas farther behind. Ultimately, that ended up being academic, but you know they didn't know that at the time, of course. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of strategy to be derived from from the the three DRS zones around Saudi, isn't there? As we'll talk about with Verstappen and Leclerc's battle, and so whether or not you know if your two teammates running together, you would have thought you could continue to use the DRS zone to pull each other and just take turns rather than going for the lead right you basically just use it to to get the best lap time for both of you uh, early on in the race i mean that would seem to me to be the smart play um and keep yourself out of drs zone for those behind you or try and close up on those ahead of you um you know it would be fairly simple to to arrange that i would think um with with the team's help and yet uh, they just focused on trying to trying to get ahead i mean it is curious, the three DRS zones in Saudi, especially the very long one prior to the last corner, sets up some really intriguing scenarios for strategy in terms of when you want to actually be leading um, on the track to be able to hold the overtake. Um, and so, you know, you could do some, like we've seen at Monza in the past, there's a lot of potential to use that and, uh, and, and basically create a draft situation for two cars that ultimately should be quicker than one car being able to run on its own. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's fairly unique to Saudi. I don't think we have that sort of strange double DRS situation anywhere else that I can think of on the on the circuit, can you? Not to the extremes that we saw there. I, 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 I think we've seen it. We I think we even saw it in Bahrain, but we just saw it times two in Saudi Arabia. It was just really amplified here. Yeah, you're right, Bahrain... Bahrain has a similar sort of characteristic, doesn't it? But uh, but you have, the, usually, you have the main straight, yeah. turn one, and then you get another shot at it right away, right there. I mean, it, it was almost a repeat, Leclerc v Verstappen, um, where Verstappen would get him down the main straight and Leclerc would get him right back on that short shoot to four. Yeah, that's true. 
but yeah. But, so uh, the, other tracks that we visit with the same situation, I can't. I can't no. remember any other circuit having that same sort of double DRS separated by one corner specifically. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm trying to think of. Yeah, yeah, that that part is rare, and it's just you know where the straights are and stuff like that. And you know, I actually have a little bit of a editorial on DRS zones, but let's wait just a minute I, on that. Do you have? I mean, what did what did you think of the racing itself? It seemed remarkably impressive. How? We saw just the Ferrari, it was so crystal clear that Ferrari had better cornering speed and the Red Bull had fantastic straight line speed. And how that was used uh, throughout the race was really something. Yeah, I mean, the wing, the the rear wing um, differences were stark between the Red Bull and the Ferrari, weren't they? Ferrari were definitely running quite a bit more rear wing. um, And that certainly seemed to benefit them on the twisty parts of the track and Red Bull obviously benefited in the straight line. I mean, I thought it was interesting how Charles seemed to be able to control the race pace after the safety car um, and Verstappen either didn't want to or wasn't able to get within DRS range. You know, he couldn't get within a second. Um, but then after the VSC, it all changed and, uh, and Max then seemed to either find more pace or was able to get his tyres up to temperature quicker or you know, just uh, on, on lighter fuel loads was more competitive because yeah, Charles just couldn't couldn't get away. And then we had this fascinating situation where they, they were trying to figure out who wanted who wanted to have DRS down the main straight and the the outbreaking of each other both locking up um, into the final quarter was 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 astonishing. And, and locking up so was, that w- they were trying to be behind the other one. That's it was, right. It was it was lock up to try to be slower than I mean it was reverse racing uh, yeah. for moments it was the slowest person wins you know it was a it was a kindergarten uh, it was a kindergarten uh, game uh, during recess for a little while yeah it was crazy I mean initially it looked like Charles had outwitted Max and uh, was able to to realize that he could uh, he could hold the lead by just slowing up a little bit in that uh, second DRS zone um, and letting Max go there, and then he would repass him. But then Max got wise to that. But I think I think we, you know, the grandstand finish was ruined by by the uh, once once Verstappen had taken the lead with a couple of laps to go. I think Charles had a real chance to get the lead back again. But then the yellow flag at turn one stymied his run on Max, and, and yeah. then he ran out of laps. And because yeah. Max wasn't able to pull away. After he took the lead, you know, Charles was able to hang with him. So I think if this had gone on a little longer, we would have, you know, who knows who would have won. But, uh, but yeah, Max played it pretty well. He got the lead at the right time, helped out by the yellows, was able to, to, uh, to win the race. And yet Max Verstappen is becoming the perfect Bond villain here because I was really getting sick of... And again, I, you've made this point before, and it's very true. We don't know which radio message the FIA and Formula One chooses to broadcast. But him complaining about first, uh, uh, Leclerc crossing the pit start lane constantly. Him complain. I mean, he's just he was complaining constantly, and everything we heard from Leclerc, you know, was. Was, it was not complaints in Leclerc. The first thing he did was congratulate Verstappen on great racing. You know, big thumbs up out of the car. So I'm just, I'm just, so I'm, I'm struggling to keep this, you know, impartiality going when I'm just getting so many like, just Bond villain 101 moves from Verstappen. I think. Ultimately, we're not hearing all the radio messages for all the drivers, are we? And they're being cherry-picked. And, and I think, like we, we heard a well, lot... Well, it's working. It's working. Yeah. In preceding seasons, <laughs> we just heard know. Hamilton the whiner. Now it's Verstappen the whiner. I think they just... I, I don't know. Someone's intentionally making some drivers make out. Well, the, the, the Hamilton comment, that was just... That was post-race interview. So, I mean, you know, that no, they interviewed no, everybody... Point, Oh, well, yeah, okay, yeah. and but you're right. You're right. That that was the chunks of the interview they showed us. You're right. No, fair point. But no, I'm saying in preceding seasons, Hamilton's radio messages have been kind of whiny too, and uh, maybe maybe they just take you know the, the current champion and make him sound like he's a, <laughs> he's a spoiled kid. Yeah, um, there you go. That's, that that makes sense. 
the thing that's been discussed a lot post-race is how Verstappen's style of racing seems to have changed uh, against Charles versus Lewis, though. It does seem more um, respectful, I will say. Yeah, and I don't know if that's because of the opposition or because of the rules clarification, um, but certainly, I mean, it was certainly you know, still fairly aggressive and still fairly robust, but, but it was a lot cleaner than what we saw towards the end of last year. Which, you know, if this is going to be continued and against all other drivers, I think has to be applauded because yeah, it got out of hand last year. So and we all, you know, I think we've gone on record as saying that we all think that, uh, that uh, Max is a pretty talented driver. We just want to see him use that talent without going, you know, overstepping the mark. So, yes. so yeah, it was, a, it was a, another fine battle between the two of them. It, it was a bit disappointing to me that Carlos and Sergio couldn't quite get in the mix too because that would have been... Really tremendous if we could have had all four cars battling it out. But I guess uh, maybe we're asking a bit too much. I think it was enough with just the two of them. Um, but yeah, great, great start to the season. I mean, I think the other the other point is is that with with the new aero rules seemingly working fairly well, and that the cars are able to follow each other better through through the corners. Is is the DRS now becoming just way, way too powerful and too instrumental? Do we need to already start thinking about fewer DRS zones or less DRS time now that the cars are able to follow and get back to more classical overtaking manoeuvres rather than DRS-aided manoeuvres? I, I think that should be something considered soon and not you know take years and years to implement. I, I want to first say that this was not rehearsed or practised or anything. Uh, Chris, that was just such a wonderful segue to my next point. Thank you. Yeah, DRS. It, the, I my DRS in Bahrain was fascinating. I was like, oh wow, they could you know kind of one could use the other to do this and do that. That was interesting strategy. But here, it's we started drifting into farcical. I mean, this isn't the point of racing. The point of racing is not try to be behind the guy going into one corner so you can be ahead of him going into this corner because there's a spinning turtle shell over there that you know is going to hit them. This is not Mario Kart. And it, I, I was quickly getting frustrated with how DRS was playing too important a role in race, race strategy and race move. Not race strategy, but like, you know, driver's strategy of passing someone driver's race strategy in the moment and it, it i think that because it, it needs to be dialed back or or you know or slowly slowly petered out of the system if it's going to be used this way because i was definitely getting frustrated with it yeah i think it could become it, it could just turn it all into just to, you know too easy to overtake i mean it's already the overtakes aren't really drivers are, are not going for moves necessarily where there's more risk they're just waiting for the drs opportunity so we're already watering down some of the some of the proper overtaking maneuvers you know with so many drs zones and, and for such a long portion of the track length it just it seems like they need to really reevaluate that for the rest of this season given that the aero rules are working so let's you know the sooner we can get back to pure, more pure racing without needing the DRS, the better, I think. And, and I, I know that is the FIA and F1's goal, and so uh, they're working towards that, but we don't want it to be too too long a process to reevaluate, do we? We want, we want them to react more quickly, because ultimately, you know, they can do it on a race-by-race -race basis. They, it's very easy for them, I think, to implement or change the DRS uh, zones on, on any given circuit. It's a white line, for goodness sake, and then some... Uh, some activation points so it should be something that they should be able to react to quickly yeah i completely agree and i i just think we need to end this part of the conversation with the with just a simple fact we've had two races in a row where a driver was deliberately trying to be behind another driver at a certain point to enable drs it's working but it's working backwards in certain parts of the track so that it can try to work in its intended use in other parts of the track. So this is definitely unintended consequences that we're seeing here. Yeah, but I mean, you can't really argue. We've had, we've had two exciting races. We've had the uh, ability for there to be passing 
between the top drivers. I mean, all the way through the field, but between the drivers trying to battle it out for the win. So I think you could still say that it, it is an effective tool and it has improved the racing. I mean, you, you don't have to go back very far in the history of the sport to get races where there was no passing on track, particularly amongst the front runners, simply because, you know, the, the track layout and the aero uh, right. just, the wake, just wouldn't allow it. The wake of the yeah. race cars is everything. Yeah, absolutely. And the I'm a big proponent. I think the changes they made and going back to Venturi tunnels and, you know, underwing, underwing uh, setups so that uh, you have a much different way of generating downforce that's much less disrupted by, you know, chasing cars is brilliant. We now gotten to a point where we can regulate that more effectively and uh, we don't have to, we don't have to worry about one team running away from a championship. So all of that is, all of that is great. So the band-aid that we had on to give us some passing, it needs to be scaled back, you know, and I think what you're saying is exactly right. So, you know, one DRS zone per track in a, in a well-placed area or something along those lines, perhaps. But, uh, you know, what, what was it? Two or three DRS zones with one corner in between that just, that just needs to be done with. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They need to, they need to reevaluate it on a case by case basis. Uh, and they should have some simulation tools that can give them some idea of the, uh, of the power of the DRS um, for these cars, and so they should be they should be trying to get the, the balance right. And I'm sure they, well, hopefully they will. So who else stood out for you? I mean, we talked a little bit about uh, McLaren already with Norris um, managing to get seventh. So definitely improvements for uh, McLaren. Although Danny had the had the uh, failure, I'm not quite sure what the failure was down to. Did you read what what uh, caused him to stop? No, no, I didn't. But I did yeah. want to point out uh, the fine work of uh, Dr. Franca Schroeder um, and uh, the Alfa Romeo. It's right there. Two races in a row. That has been a competitive car. Um, you know, Botas has been right there. Zhao has been there or thereabouts. And uh, it, it's, it seems to be a genuine mid-pack car, this one. Yeah, I mean, they got no points, did they, in round two. Um, but they have, uh, they have nine for the season so far. Um, but yeah, I mean, Botas was lamenting his, uh, you know, his poor fortune. Um, but definitely, they're much more competitive than last season. So definitely, much more positive for Alpha for sure. Um, it, it is interesting the unreliability, though. I mean, we poor old Sonoda, after having a water system issue in qualifying, then then had a problem <laughs> during the outlaps for the race uh, with a driveline issue. So he didn't even start. So Alpha Tauri's. Uh, and sort of the greater Red Bull group's reliability isn't hasn't been great. Uh, so three DNFs over the first two races, not ideal. And then um, it was we we then had an Alpine uh, fail to finish, an Alfa Romeo fail to finish. Uh, you know, we had both Williamses <laughs> not finishing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the reliability is not not great, and there's a variety of issues. Quite a lot power power unit related. Um, so that's surprising that the teams are struggling so badly. We had a good mix of finishes in the bottom of the top 10. So we had Gasly uh, getting AlphaTauri uh, eighth place, so their first points of the season. And then uh, Magnussen, another fine weekend from him, despite struggling with his neck, um, was able to uh, to get a couple of points for ninth. So very good start for him on his return to Formula oh, 1. Oh, I mean, he's he's yeah, it's been great. He's crushing it. I mean, it's, it's it's exactly what we needed. You know, we had this whole controversy with Mazepin and Russian money and all this kind of stuff, and all of a sudden we just we just needed a nice Danish, nice Danish to <laughs> cleanse the palate, and here we are, and we're in, we're in a much better place. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So he's he's going he's going great, um, and uh, you know, I mean, has a fifth place in the championship, twelve points. Uh, remarkable bounce from last year's awful awful season for them so you know there's a we got the we've got ferrari mercedes and red bull who've pulled out quite a lead uh, at the top of the table but alpine has alfa romeo alfa Tauri, mclaren separated by 10 points so there's a going to be a huge midfield battle here for fourth fourth and fifth places 
Aston Martin and Williams both struggled, didn't they? What did you make of the Stroll-Albon crash? Albon got a penalty for that that'll be applied in Australia, a grid penalty. I think it's a three-place pen. Um, seems harsh to me. I think I think Stroll turned in on him a bit. Yeah. What did you make of that? No, I agree with you entirely. I, I did not see that. I did not see that the way they saw that. Because um, the, the rules talk about the overtaking car being far enough alongside that the, that the, 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 uh, the driver has to give them room. And, and it seemed to me Stroll did not. Um, so, and I'm, I then confused why the stewards are then penalising Albon. So it seems like they've already disregarded the <laughs> rules for 2022 and are just going to hand out penalties willy-nilly. I mean, Albon, you know, was, uh, Williams wasn't competitive. Um, this weekend uh, compared to Bahrain but you know he was still in the hunt for trying to get a point or two um and that 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 and the Williams suffered a lot of damage from that contact as well the, the um the Aston came out much better and Stroll was able to finish the race but Albon had to uh, curtail his, his running based on that contact so uh not ideal for Williams at all yeah no they're they're not making the step forward that I think we all hoped and, uh, you know, there's obviously still time yet, and there's still development that can happen that can change that. But, uh, yeah, but Williams is not looking terribly promising so far. And, uh, yeah, the rules and the and the calls certainly haven't helped. I, I agree with you entirely. There's, there's a lot of speculation that the Mercedes power unit is now uh, quite a bit behind both Ferrari and the Red Bull unit. The, the former Honda unit, um, and that you know the evidence being put, being put forward is that uh, most of the Mercedes runners are generally at the lower order of the grid. Uh, talking Williams, Aston Martin here are being outgunned by the the Ferrari units in in Alfa Romeo and and uh, um, has so. Uh, it is an interesting. It is an interesting point. There's, there was a lot of chip turnover at uh, Mercedes uh, performance, high performance um, subdivision that, that works that works on the power units. And uh, Cowell Cowell left, resigned, and went off to pastures new. And then Red Bull uh, took quite a few of their employees um, last year. So there's been some turnover, and and you wonder if that's that's now causing them to sort of uh, lose a bit of competitiveness. But that would be, you know, after years and years of domination, that would be a pretty shocking uh, event, really, if they're now the, only the second or third best power unit provider in F1. And I mean, you could argue with Alpine, Alpine's uh, decent performance so far, maybe. Maybe they're the slowest power unit in Formula One. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? So, again, you know, they're very limited in, with the rules as to what they can do. They're, I think they're allowed to make some changes based on reliability issues, um, but not really performance um, it, uh, deficiencies. So, you know, you wonder if this, this, this is something that's going to be hurting them throughout the season and subsequent seasons, in which case this could be a real challenge for all the Mercedes runners, not, le- not least the, uh, the, the works unit. So uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how this works and develops over the course of the, uh, the season. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, if they, if they have a major breakthrough in power, they'll, they'll just take the hit and implement it, I would imagine. We'll see. But, you're, I mean, you're right that that is another hurdle they have to get over, potentially. Mercedes has been kind of trying to say, you know, maybe maybe engine isn't the best, but, you know, it could also just be the arrow that we're dealing with, you know, and it makes the engine look worse. And it's like, well, but just as you said, if all the Mercedes runners are towards the back, it's starting to become harder to believe coincidence. Yeah. So. Exactly. But, yeah. But we'll have another test of that. And this is a slightly less engine-dependent track when they race in Australia. That's coming um, uh, April 8th, 9th, and 10th that weekend. And that is the same weekend as uh, IndyCar. And IndyCar is going to one of their premier events in Long Beach. So that's also uh, 8th, 9th, and 10th. So that's going to be a great big old weekend of racing that we're very much looking forward to. In the meantime, there is something even more exciting than all of that, and that, of course, is my latest YouTube video. Um, I put together something big on the 
2023 Mazda CX-50, a new SUV from Mazda that is not a replacement of the Mazda CX-5, just a tiny touch of an enlargement, you could argue. It's um, still a two-row compact crossover SUV with the same powertrain options as a CX-5, but it can tow 1,500 more pounds if you have the turbocharged motor and has uh, a bit more off-roading capability and uh, you know different styling and different um, different choices in terms of interior options, those kinds of things. And it's it's a mighty good Ute that Mazda. Excellent. So, uh, did you try any of your hypermiling techniques in the Mazda, or is it more of a zoom zoom on the curves? <laughs> more of the latter for sure. Um, I definitely achieved mileage. Um, what that is, I'm not certain, but uh, it's quick. <laughs> I can tell you that much. And uh, uh, but I did also get a chance to try it off-road. They gave me an opportunity to tow. So this was a trip that I went on with Mazda to try this one out. And uh, so I got a chance to tow 3,500 pounds with it. I did some off-roading with it. And I did my usual variety of roads with it as well. So, you know, one, uh, one of the more thorough tests I've done. And, uh, yeah, pass away. Oh, one other fun fact about that. This is, this is the Mazda that is being built at the Mazda Toyota manufacturing facility in Huntsville, Alabama. So Toyota is building the Corolla Cross, and Mazda is building this. So what off-road uh, track did you did you t- undertake? Oh, it was just, you know, it wasn't, we did not go to the Moab. It was not something super hardcore, <laughs> but it was, Was it know, sort of muddy track or rock or what sort of uh, obstacles? Basically loose sand, mud dirt track kind of a thing but you know fairly some fairly steep ascents and descents and uh, uh, certainly some some whoops and some ruts and those types of things you had to get around and some fairly sharp breakover angles to test those limitations of the car a little bit nothing nothing extreme but okay. certainly certainly more than a front wheel drive Mazda 3 could manage you know, I think Mazda's got some pretty good-looking cars out in the uh, in the market right now. Um, they 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 do have a bit of a good, strong styling theme, I think, uh, in their range, and and they do definitely tune their cars more to uh, to the drivers, right? So riding exactly characteristics right. tend to be pretty good. So um, yes, they, uh, it's interesting how the collaboration with Toyota seems to be seems to get stronger i mean obviously subaru and toyota have been doing a couple of vehicles together they've got an ev out together haven't they so it seems like some of the japanese manufacturers are starting to to really um combine forces here as the industry evolves into the ev landscape out of necessity to a certain extent and uh, toyota is a major major player in on the ev side of things and i think smaller companies like subaru like mazda know that it's uh, sink or swim and uh, Nissan and Honda are big enough to stay separate, but uh, uh, Subaru and Mazda, uh, not so much. Although, ironic, I mean, Subaru is um, owned by Fuji Heavy Industries, at least majority stakeholder. I got to be careful. I Let's uh, pause for another corrections on the next episode. But, um, <laughs> but um, you know, they're owned by a big company. But uh, in on the automotive side, it's a little bit. You know, they're not as big as Toyota. No one is as big as Toyota, even Volkswagen Auto Group. So uh, that's that's the point there. So um, was that the only only fun wheels you had for the week? Or yes, uh, yeah. So I was dedicated to that, and I did a lot on that. I've written an article about that. I posted on the Facebook page, Twitter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, you know, I did a lot of coverage of that car, um, and there was a lot to talk about. It was an interesting thing. But oh, well, um, should we guess the sticker then? Let's play guess the sticker. We haven't done that in a while. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Why not? Let's do it. Um, so I, the car I was in was the top-of-the-line model that they're selling at the moment. And uh, so go ahead and guess the base price for the base model and then the top-of-the-line car. Compact SUV. I'm going to say base price is probably 35 and top of the line 48. 
base price is $28,025. Wow, a two. Good grief. Top of the line price base price is uh, $42,775, I think it was. And uh, okay. mine was a little bit more expensive because it had the polymetal gray optional paint for $395. Of course, you can't actually order a base vehicle these days, but, you know, it's nice in theory to know. But I guess it, it exists in theory. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but oh. we'll leave it there for now. I want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcasts, which seems to be everywhere these days. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. And check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. Chris, man, it's not even 11 a.m. yet. Enjoy your tea, Robin. Cheers. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. Goodbye.